You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, and welcome to the latest edition of Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We are recording this episode on Thursday, the 24th of November. Today, we're going to be talking about how Advent is celebrated in Sweden. We'll discuss the second spectacular spy story in the space of two weeks. We'll chat about the resurgence of tensions between the Sweden Democrats and the Liberals. We'll get into what we know about Sweden's plans to get rid of permanent residency permits. And we'll hear from a professor on why they're doing it. And finally, we'll end with a short quiz to gauge our panelists' Swedishness this week. I'm Paul Amani and we've got the regular crew today, James Savage here in Stockholm and Becky Waterton and Richard Orange in Malmö. How are you all doing? Very well, thanks. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, that is very good to hear. <laughs> I'm doing a very Swedish thing today. I am going away on a conference to a conference hotel. It's um, with the Swedish Magazine Publishers Association where I sit on the board and we're going to sit there and bond and have meetings, which is... Roll in the snow, do snow angels together. <laughs> um, I, I probably. <laughs> Speaking of snow, we have had a lot of snow this week. Are, are you people pro-snow or do you stay indoors? I'm pro-snow if it's like a decent amount of snow. I am anti the pathetic amount of snow we've had in Malmo, but I'm pro pretty snow that actually looks nice. I'm pro-snow on day one, and anti-snow. <laughs> well, we had a lot of snow up here, and it's been all over the news uh, this week in various ways. Becky, can you give us a summary? Uh, how's, how's the country coping? Well, I mean, from what I've seen of Stockholm, not very well. I mean, Malmo's not really had any snow that has made any kind of difference. It was all melted a few hours later. But it looks like in Stockholm, there were cancelled trains, there were cancelled buses, there were some owls at Skansen Zoo that escaped due to the snow. <laughs> So it looks like it's been pretty chaotic, which uh, you maybe wouldn't expect from a Scandinavian country. But I guess, to be fair to Stockholm, if if there was like a fleet of snow plows on standby 24-7, we'd be hearing complaints about the waste of taxpayers' money when they only needed a few days a year. Yeah, I was quite impressed this morning, actually. I, I cycled to work. It's like a seven or eight kilometre cycle and all the cycle paths were, were cleared. It is impressive. And it's I think it's impressive every year. The fact is that on the first day of snow, they're always caught by surprise. Or, or I think just the fact is, if, it, if, if there's a big dump of snow all at once, it just takes a while to get that initial clearance going. Yeah. And once that's done, um, then then things work. You've just got to be patient for the first 24 hours or so. But it doesn't sound like there's been that much in Malmö then, Richard. Yeah, there's been some. I mean, I wasn't here when it, I was I was I was in a weekend in Serbia, but but I saw on, on Twitter and Facebook that it was all that there was snow everywhere. And there has been snow. There's even been a bit of snow in Smugahuk, which is the southernmost tip of Sweden, about half an hour away. And there was a bit of snow still when my kids got to school on Monday, but they're banned from having snowball fights, which I think is 
an outrage. <laughs> and, uh, and Becky posted a great pic of her daughter inspecting, you know, a little bit of snow on one of the benches. And we actually got a lot of pics from readers. We went out to readers and said, has anyone got any pictures of snow? And particularly people in Stockholm sent the most fantastic pictures. So it looks like it's been in places like Lidinger. It's like looks it looks like it's about a foot thick it looks amazing and um mm. and i think my favorite that we got sent in was someone sent a picture of kalmar castle sort of covered in a sort of um crust of snow it's just looked fantastic that was a guy called shahid satar and also someone called anand vijaya raghavan sent a fantastic picture of the rooftops of solna some of the older buildings like there's some towers sort of covered in snow it's just looked extraordinary where can we see those pictures Partly on Twitter, you know, people just replied to them to on the Twitter thread. But we also put some of the best ones together in a, in an article. We couldn't, you know, we could only include about six, seven, eight of the best. We couldn't put all of them in because there were some great pictures mm. people got. Oh, brilliant! Well, we'll link to that. And I found myself shuttling my kids and their teammates to basketball games last weekend because I had luckily managed to change to winter tires the day before the heavens opened. Unlike, I should say, a lot of my neighbours, people were sort of panicking, trying to take their kids to all sorts of activities like, oh, can't do it. What are the rules there, James, on on winter tyres? When do motorists have to think about changing their tyres and what are some important things to think about? Well, I mean, legally, your neighbours could have gone out on the roads with their cars without their winter tyres, although perhaps it wouldn't have been advisable because you're not obliged to have winter tyres on your car if there are wintry road conditions, unless it's between the 1st of December and 31st of March. Or put it another way, if it's wintry road conditions, it's what they call Winterweglag. That means if there's snow and ice on the road, you must have winter tyres on your car between the 1st of December and 31st of March. But you mustn't have them on your car between the 15th of April and the 1st of October. So you've got that sort of window between the 1st of October and the 1st of December to get your act together and get your winter tyres on your car. And certainly if you're in Stockholm or certainly in the north of Sweden, it's a good idea to get them on in October, I'd say. From my experience, because it was often you'll get get at least a dusting in, in November. If you're really sort of butch, then you'll change them yourself. Frankly, though, I've long preferred to take them to a to a mechanic who will do them and then store them for us um, and it makes it quite easy. Obviously it's cheaper to do that outside of the big cities. It's a bit more expensive in in Stockholm, Gothenburg and Malmö but I I say highly advisable. Great, thanks for that. Let's look ahead now to what's coming up. It's the first Sunday of Advent this weekend. What can you tell us about how Advent is celebrated in Sweden, Becky? Advent traditionally used to be a fast which uh, Swedes don't really celebrate the fast anymore. It was to celebrate the arrival or the birth of Jesus. Advent originally comes from the Latin word for arrival. But for most people in Sweden, it involves Advent use, so Advent candles. You have four candles where a different candle is lit every Sunday leading up to Christmas. What you'll mainly see in Sweden is a four candle Advent candlestick, which is decorated with moss, bark, pine branches and pine cones, which obviously you remove at the end of the season. And also, I mean, I've seen quite a few people starting to hang up Advent stars in their windows already. But the first of Advent is seen as the day where you can start decorating for Christmas. You'll see triangular shaped candlesticks with seven candles on, which are like electric, which is actually a reference to the menorah in the Bible. So that's a reference to Jesus's Jewish faith. And then it's also the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit or other things that come in seven, seven days for God to create the world in the book of Genesis or the seven churches in early Christianity. But I think most Swedes don't really think about that. They just think it's nice to have some pretty lights in the window in the winter season to kind of make everything look a little bit more festive. This podcast is made possible by members of The Local. A big thank you to everyone who subscribes. It's really highly appreciated. 
If you're considering becoming a member, we have an offer for podcast listeners that you can find at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer. Now, back to the news. And you might remember that we spoke last week about two brothers alleged to be passing highly classified information about Sweden to the Russian security services. Well, this week we've had another spy story that sounds like something out of a movie. Can you give us the lowdown, James? This was an extraordinary story because it came to light when this couple, a couple in their 60s, originally from Russia, were arrested this week when... (laughs) And they were arrested in the most spectacular fashion. Police descended on their home just outside of Stockholm with not only police helicopters, but also two Black Hawk army helicopters where they winched down in in an operation that took, according to eyewitnesses, took about a minute and smashed the window, went into this couple's home, brought them out and then were going around and doing forensics on their home. But it was a very dramatic operation involving the military and involving the military in a police operation is extremely unusual and shows a, must show that the, that the police were taking this incredibly seriously and were very keen to have an element of surprise and to, and, and, and to secure evidence. What's interesting about this, the couple have been in Sweden for decades, since the 90s, and they are, are Swedish citizens, but they're originally from Russia. They're both in their 60s. They've brought up their children in Sweden. They've worked with import-export of computer equipment and other machinery, as well as doing IT work, also doing consultancy work, helping Swedish businesses who wanted to in- invest in Russia. One of them is suspected of gross unlawful intelligence activities against Sweden and the same crime, but against another unnamed foreign power. They're accused of doing of doing espionage work both against Sweden and another country. And the other member of the couple, and we don't know which is which, but um, the other is, um, is, is, is being charged as an accessory. Now, the crime that they have been uh, accused of, this gross unlawful intelligence activities, is less serious than espionage. Espionage was the crime that this, um, this Iranian, um, these Iranian brothers were, were, were charged with recently. So this is a less serious crime. But I think, you know, the whole spectacular nature of the operation and, and, the, and the fact that, that these, um, these people are Russian is obviously, obviously means that this is of, of, of enormous interest to the security police. And it's going to be very interesting to see if we get any more information about this. I've never heard of anything like that before. Black Hawk helicopters being used to arrest people. No. I mean, and you know, in Sweden, they're very nervous about using the military in any kind of police operations, like they are in most democratic countries. So the fact that they've, um, the fact that they, they did this indicates that they, that they were clearly wanted an element of surprise, but also that this was a very well planned and critical operation. I saw someone on social media who was really upset that nobody captured this on video. He's like, Swedes are taking videos of everything. How did they miss a dawn raid involving two Black Hawk helicopters? I um, I imagine that the police and the military who were on the site were very, very keen to ensure that nobody was filming this. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, those eyewitnesses that did speak to the press were ushered away from the site very quickly and mm. told... Uh, and and told to get out of the way. So right. I imagine, given the, given the secretive nature and the high security nature of everything, that anyone filming would have been uh, given short shrift. Crazy story. We've spoken before on this podcast about the tension between the Liberals and the Sweden Democrats. Both are members of the coalition that signed the TIDA agreement, but only the Liberals made it into the government. The far-right Sweden Democrats, however, are the biggest party on the right, And they've made no secret of the fact that they would rather they were the ones with ministerial positions. And Richard, I remember you saying on here once that the fault line in Swedish politics runs right through the Liberal Party and many of their members are deeply uncomfortable 
with the fact that they're in a government where the Sweden Democrats are pulling a lot of the strings behind the scenes. Can you talk about how this friction has manifested itself again this week and what it means as the Liberals prepare for a party conference this weekend? Well, there's been a bit of a mini-scandal, which was came because um, the, the party's leader, Johan Persson, was at a very low-key event in Jestrikland, which is north of Stockholm, just organised by a local paper, which is Liberal. But anyway, he described in his speech to the people there, the Sweden Democrats, as Enbrun Surya, which basically means a brown or sort of Nazi gloop. And the Sweden Democrats have reacted quite strongly against this and they've sort of um, Oscar Hörstedt, the party's group leader said that this was breaking the terms of the TIDA agreement which has a clause saying that none of the parties should criticise each other, none of the parties to the deal should campaign against each other publicly. But he also said a whole load of other things. He said that if the government did anything that went broke, sort of broke any kind of liberal red lines, he was ready to pull out and basically collapse the government. He sort of said that the Liberals had blocked a whole load of sick things from being in the deal. And he also said, it wasn't me who let all this shit into the agreement. So it's pretty strong words, and it definitely wasn't intended for broader public consumption. But what happened was, is there was a reporter there, a culture reporter for Expressen, who'd been given an award by this newspaper, and she was in the audience, and she recorded everything and wrote up a big piece. So presumably, this is the, the sort of language he uses for a sort of private Liberal Party audience Mm. coming up to the next conference on the weekend. I think it's quite important for the Liberals to profile themselves as a kind of block against the Sweden Democrats, that they can stop the government doing things which are too illiberal, that they can block proposals that are too extreme, that they kind of act as a kind of policeman for the government. And in a way, for both the Sweden Democrats and the Liberals, it's helpful to have this tension, I think, because the Sweden Democrats can't be seen as completely establishment, completely part of the government. So they can say, oh, the Liberals are stopping this, the Liberals are blocking us from doing this. Mm. And the Liberals, on the other hand, have to say, we stop this, we, we, we are actually achieving something. We're not just, we haven't just lain down flat and let this illiberal government do whatever they like. And because and Jorn Persson has definitely had a lot of criticism for being weak. I mean, I think a columnist this week described him as having a backbone made of liver pasté, which is quite quite strong language. <laughs> language <laughs> liver pasté, a, a brune seria. <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, on the weekend it, it, it's a special conference that's been called to vote him back in because when he was put in place in the spring, it was only on a temporary basis and there was no kind. It right. wasn't backed by the party members, but he's the only candidate. So I think it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that he will get through. Even even though there is, as, as, as you said, quite a lot of opposition within the party to the route that they've taken. The party's deeply split. Should we have backed a government that's supported by the Sweden Democrats or not? And especially the Liberal Youth Party, the new leader of that, has been saying that he thinks this is completely the wrong thing. And his mission over the mandate period is to take back control of the party and yeah. you know prevent it from working with the Sweden Democrats. So that there, there is still that battle. But I think that on the weekend, he's. it looks like he's going to get voted in without any, any problems. On the other hand, though, Johan Persson is part of the reason the Liberals are in the government and in the parliament at all. They were close to dropping out. So I think they're kind of torn there. Like, OK, well, he's not perfect, but without him, maybe we wouldn't even be in parliament. When he took over, they were at 2% in the polls and yeah. they, they scored, they got 4.6% in the election. So, and some of that credit seems to 
go to him. Those two first months were an amazing piece of political campaigning. Yeah, it'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall at the conference this weekend to see if things get a bit tetchy between the the different factions. They always will. The Liberals are legendarily split. I mean, there are almost as many opinions in the Liberals as there are members of the Liberals. It's um, <laughs> it's, it's it's this party of sort of academics, intellectuals who are very all all very all sort of very independent, yeah. independent thinking, and that makes for difficult party discipline. I mean, that's another thing he said in this speech. He goes, "Look, I don't want to be leading a party of." Yevle soldater, you know, I don't want to be leading a bunch of troops who march in line. I love this party with its difference of opinion and the fact that half of you hate me and, and everything I've done. <laughs> <laughs> as well as saying these slightly unwise things, he's got an amazing turn of phrase. I mean, as a student of Swedish, it's fantastic. The words he uses are sort of the short words that are the old ones that hardly anyone uses. He, he always sort of rolls them out like, 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 uh, sorry, yeah. sorry, yeah. I've never, I've never, I've I had never exactly. heard the word sorry before this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're going to talk now about uh, permanent residence permits and what's going to happen to them after the head of the migration agency told public broadcaster SVT this week that he would be very worried if he had permanent residency. Now, it's no secret that the government wants to phase out permanent residency permits. It's there in black and white in the TIDA agreement that the three ruling parties signed with the Sweden Democrats. But Mikhail Ribbenvik's comments brought into relief the fact that the government is considering a retroactive law change. And this seemed to snap Sweden out of its reverie on an issue that will potentially affect some 300,000 people. And we'll hear in a moment from an expert on far-right populism to get her view on why the Sweden Democrats were so keen to get this into the agreement. But can we just talk first about what we know about this plan? What exactly does the TIDA agreement say here? So, yeah, so first off, this is all under the topic Samlat ansvar och intensifierat arbete för återvändande verksamhet to basically get people to return to their home countries. And it's in the section that talks about asylum seekers and asylum-related residence permits. So the exact quote about permanent residency in the TIDO agreement is... Asylum-related residence permits should be temporary and the Institute of Permanent Residence Permits should be phased out for a new system based on the protection status of affected immigrants. Um, and then they also write, 
just under that section. An inquiry will look at the circumstances under which current permanent residence permits would be able to be converted to temporary permits, for example, by giving affected residence permit holders realistic possibilities of gaining citizenship. These changes will occur within the framework of basic legal principles. So until now, it's kind of been unclear as to whether this will only affect refugees or, you know, people here seeking shelter, seeking refuge with permanent residence permits or everyone else with permanent residence permits. But as we wrote about this week, a representative from the Migration Ministry told SVT that this will apply to all residence permit holders. Uh, they, they wrote in a comment to SVT, an investigation will look into what circumstances existing permanent residence permits could be turned into temporary residence permits. If they're planning on reforming the entire system of permanent residency, it could potentially affect all non-EU citizens here in Sweden. So that could be people who have permanent residency due to work permits. It could be people with permanent residency due to being researchers people who are here as family members of someone with citizenship or residency in Sweden. The people it will not affect are EU citizens, people who are here as family members of non-Swedish EU citizens, so that's people who have an uppehållskort or uppehållsrätt, and it won't affect Brits with post-Brexit residency, so that's uh, uppehållsstatus, resident status, because they all have permanent residency under EU law and not under national law. So it will only affect people with permanent residency under Sweden's national law. So that is uppehållstillstånd, also known as PUT. The question I have about this is, under what circumstances then would they deprive someone of permanent residency who's already been granted permanent residency? You can already have your permanent residency removed if you commit a serious crime, I believe. So it's not we're not talking about that. We're talking about something else. We're talking about what? A change in someone's labour market status, are we? Is that what we're saying? Or is it this bristande vandal, sort of antisocial behaviour? Or is it something else? If it's these things, if it's if it's the labour market status, for example, what, you know, you lose your job or you, you suddenly you're claiming benefits, then really you've abolished permanent residency completely and retroactively for people because the whole point of permanent residency is, well, is that it's permanent. And yeah, okay, in the, in, in, in the event you've committed a crime, there's always been that possibility to have it taken away. But 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 generally, it's supposed to be permanent for law-abiding citizens or law-abiding residents. Isn't this part and parcel of Sweden Democrat ideology? I think they're really uncomfortable with the whole idea of permanent residency, that you can have a right to live in Sweden for as long as you like without being a citizen. If, you, if you're going to stay here forever and have the right to stay here forever, they want you to completely buy into Swedish society, pass citizenship tests, take oaths, do all of these things to sort of to commit to Sweden as a country and say, this is, I am an, a citizen. They don't like the idea of people living here forever yeah, without yeah. being citizens. They've previously said that permanent residency cheapens citizenship because it, it you know, it makes it less valuable because you're already staying here permanently. Why do you need to become a citizen? Right. But two issues with this, right? First of all, there are people who there are people who, who would like to take citizenship, but whose original country, whose country of origin would not allow them to have dual citizenship. Sweden allows dual citizenship. You know, it's, and it's very easy for the Sweden Democrats and else to say, well, you know, if you're coming to Sweden, if you want to become a, a Swedish citizen, you should, you should be willing to give up your original citizenship. But if you have elderly parents in your home, in your original home country, where you think you might have to go back at least for a period to look after them, for example, or just for emotional reasons, that you find it very difficult to give up your original citizenship, even though you intend to spend your life in Sweden and contributing to Sweden. Mm. Or bureaucratic reasons. It's extremely hard to give up American citizenship. Right. So, so you know, th there are reasons why people might want might end up wanting permanent residency in Sweden 
um, despite really being committed to living here and contributing to society. And and also, let's, let's, let's not forget that the Sweden Democrats are making it much, much harder for people to become Swedish citizens, not only through these uh, language tests and uh, other citizenship test requirements, but also just by making by extending the period during which you cannot become a Swedish citizen to eight years. You have to be in Sweden for eight years before you can apply, before you can become a Swedish citizen, according to the, the, the plans that this government has. Haven't been enacted yet, but that's that's where they wish to go. I spoke um, this morning to Anne-Kathrin Jungar, who is an associate professor at Södertörn University with a special focus on populist radical right parties in the Nordic region and Europe. And I asked her why the Sweden Democrat-backed government is exploring the possibility of converting permanent residence permits to temporary ones and what it says about where Swedish politics is today. Well, I think this is the most important question for the Sweden Democrats uh, acting as a support party for the government. I mean, they have promised the voters to make uh, Swedish migration as well as integration policies more restrictive. I don't know if you saw the comments um, the other day from uh, Mikael Ribbenvik, the head of the migration agency, who said that if he was a permanent residency holder, he would be worried. Uh, Do you think that worry is justified? Well, I believe that it's true. I mean, I think for the Swedish migration policies have been made more restrictive uh, since 2015 and the so-called refugee crisis. So also the mainstream parties have made it more difficult to receive a, a residence permit, even temporary, as well as uh, as uh, permanent residence permits. And what is left for the Sweden Democrats to push immigration policies even further in a restrictive way is to get people out. And how did you react when you read these migration sections in the TIDA agreement? Were you surprised at how far it went? Well, I was surprised that the other parties had accepted the positions of the Sweden Democrats. I think that that is where the surprise is. And uh, I was not surprised that the Sweden Democrats wanted to to have these uh, policies in in, in the government uh, agreement. But your your research looks at how radical right parties transform European parliamentary democracies. To what extent are the Sweden Democrats transforming Sweden? And I think it's interesting in this Nordic perspective because Ulf Kristersson, when he announced the formation of the new government, he mentioned Denmark quite a lot. Some Sweden Democrats traditionally have mentioned Hungary. Which direction do you think Sweden is going in? In the other Nordic countries, there have been radical right parties participating in government in Finland between 2015 and 19. I mean, the party split during that period, but uh, part of the, the Finns party continued in government. In Norway, the Progress Party has been part of government during two legislative periods. In Denmark, the Danish People's Party was a support party for a long time. And obviously, they, particularly in Denmark, but also in in Finland, which coincided with the refugee crisis, I mean, immigration, integration, migration policies were made more restrictive. The debate, I don't know if it was polarized, it was polarized already. Mainstream parties adopted to their rhetorics in in many ways, and that happened even before these parties were part of a government or supported government. So I think Sweden will go in the same way. I mean, the, the Nordic democracies are quite strong democracies. I mean, what research tells us is that if these types of populist radical right parties come to government, they might impact on the quality of, of democracy. I mean, trying to upset democratic institutions if 
democracy is weak, as in Hungary, and it's not consolidated. I mean, the Nordic democracies, the radical right parties haven't in any way threatened kind of the core democratic institutions. Obviously, they have questioned some values that we in the Nordic countries conceive of basic democratic values, having a free cultural uh, life, having kind of of education, supporting civil society, and also kind of, of multicultural uh, civil societies. And we already see that in the governmental proposals that they are are kind of, of lowering um, the financial support in these types of, of organizations and policies. So in the short run, I don't see any kind of threat for democracy in the Nordic countries. I think what is important is what where, where we should keep our eyes on is what the mainstream parties do. I mean, how do they react? Do they support the Sweden democratic uh, policies and views on these policies? So I think there is the biggest danger. And I think that's the most important things to consider, not the Sweden Democrats. We know what they want and it's up to the other parties to react. And I think to migration policies, I think what's mentioning is that the mainstream parties already since 2015 have adopted to Sweden democratic Migration policies. I mean, they made they were made more restrictive after 2015. So there is no big opposition as to the fact that Sweden have moved from a very liberal migration policies to very restrictive, and now is similar to many other European countries and the Nordic countries. The number of quota refugees is at the same level, even lower than in Finland and Norway, and same level as Denmark as support. So we see that that Sweden is kind of harmonizing to. Uh, EU kind of mainstream policies in this field. And it has been a very rapid transformation. And that was Anne-Kathrin Jungar. Richard, you spoke to somebody this week uh, about this proposal and whether it's even legal to change laws retroactively like this. What can you tell us about that? I spoke to Christopher Jutvik, who's a politics researcher at Linköping University, who's looked at the impact of the 2016 shift where they changed to sort of automatic temporary residency for those who are granted asylum. It used to be permanent. So he's kind of an expert on this issue to an extent. But as the law is now, his understanding was that the Migration Agency can only withdraw permanent residency if someone has given false information, committed a crime or left the country. But obviously that could change through um, through this bill. But he said generally in Sweden's system of, uh, and Swedish administrative law, you can't retroactively withdraw something which has already been granted to people. It's kind of a central principle. There are two routes that this is going to get spiked, and that is by a big political groundswell of opposition against re- confiscating existing permanent residence permits. And I don't see that happening, frankly. No. I don't see any party really, apart from the usual suspects, mm. um, you know, left the Greens party, and the left. Green party, yeah. and, yeah. you know, no one else seems to care. They're not, they're not particularly relevant um, right now. Um, you know, there isn't a big groundswell of, of, of opinion. There aren't many people making the argument strongly in favour of not confiscating existing permanent residence permits from people who haven't committed a crime. And the, uh, the second is a very strong l- legal opposition to doing it, which you know I think is the more likely route, but but we've got we've got to be clear that um, we've seen government after government, particularly on migration issues, go against the Council of Laws, Lagrodet, which is which advises governments on what's legal and not legal, and what's legally reasonable and not reasonable when making laws on issue over issue. Successive governments have ignored Lagrodet's very strongly worded advice on these kinds of issues. So don't bet on it. 
it's interesting if you read the TDO agreement that it's, it's framed that this will have to happen in agreement with basic law. So there's lots of clauses in the TDO agreement, and that's something that came out in this Svenska Dogblad article, that the moderates see that and they've accepted things that they don't like because they think that it will be deemed to be illegal and then they won't have to put it through. I think the difference between the the other the, the occasions where the government has ignored the government lawyers is that in this point they actually want government lawyers to block some of the proposals in the TD agreement. Like the moderates and the liberals and the parties that are in government want it to be blocked so they can say to the Sweden Democrats, "Oh, sorry, we couldn't do that. We tried. <laughs> we tried. Oh, that was too hard, sorry." Are you ready for today's citizenship quiz? Oh, no. <laughs> Maybe it should be a permanent <laughs> residency quiz at this rate. We'll, we'll do uh, three questions as we, as we did last week as well. And you're allowed to confer. Same rules. Right. So one joint answer. One joint answer. Or you can go it alone if you like, if you, if you think the others are talking rubbish. Okay, okay. Yep. Question one. What was the name of the Swedish comedy duo who worked together on a string of reviews and films from the late 1950s until the mid-1980s? Was it Hasse och Tage, Lasse och Lorenz, Frasse och Göran? Hasse och Tage. Hasse och Tage. There's a museum in Tomlida near our house. There's it there. Yeah. yeah. There is, exactly. Hans, Hans Alfredsson and Tage Danielsson known collectively as Hasso Tager, collaborated on their first musical review in 1959 and continued their fruitful and hugely successful working relationship right up until Alfredsson's death in 1985. I've seen Eppelkriget. That's the only one of theirs I've seen. Yeah, I've, I've, Hans Alfredsson made one of my favourite Swedish films. Tage Danielsson actually wasn't involved. It's called Den, Den Enfaldige Mörderen, set in Skåne. It's a brilliant film if you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Ah. Me neither. Question two. In what year did Sweden become the first country in the world to explicitly outlaw disciplinary corporal punishment of children by parents or guardians? 1969, 1974 or 1979? Mm. My brain I is... I really don't know. I'm, I'm saying 69 because that's what my gut says. I think it was early. And I know it's called Barnaga. Indeed. It is. I have no idea. Um, I would say 74, but it's a bit of, it's clutching at straws. I, I'm going to say the other one, just so that I have a chance of winning. Richard is the winner. Yay! Just by... <laughs> I knew there was a nine in it, but I chose the wrong one. Uh, corporal punishment had been banned in Swedish educational facilities since 1958. And since 1979, parents who slap their children can be charged with criminal assault, which is a law that a lot of people around the world sort of laughed at for a long time. It and was. Th- and thought Sweden was ridiculous and now dozens of countries have followed suit. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly in Europe, it's the, the norm now, I think. Yeah. Question three. What's the name of the area in northern Sweden where five people were killed when soldiers opened fire on striking workers in 1931? Was it Soleftio, Ordalen, or Järpen? It was Ordalen, I think. Well, it was Ordalen. I can't care. Horrendous, horrendous incident. It was Ordalen, correct. The Ordalen massacre was a landmark event in 20th century Swedish history. The shootings occurred after striking sawmill workers marched to confront strikebreakers 
and the military, who had been brought in to support the police, lost control of the situation and opened fire. And I was thinking about this when you were talking earlier about the Blackhawks being brought in for this spy operation and how unusual it is for the military to collaborate with the police. Yeah. And this is part of the reason. This is part of the reason. It became extremely controversial for the military to work with the police after Very this incident. So. It's also a film about this incident called Ådalen 31, which was made by Bo Widerberg, one of Sweden's best directors. Uh, I actually haven't seen it, but uh, if oh, anyone's man. interested in finding out more about it, it's probably worth a watch. It's a totemic incident in the history of the um, social democrat and the social democrats and the labor movement. Mm. It helped them grow at a very at a, at a pivotal point in Swedish history. Absolutely, and they won the subsequent election in 1932, which they weren't really. It was on an knife edge. Mm. Uh, social democrats ended up winning it partly because of this incident they ruled Sweden for the subsequent like 500 years or whatever it was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. until this year until the was it till the 70s until the 70s mm. yeah from 1932 until the 70s yeah. yeah and then and then quite frequently since the 70s as well That's all for this week. Thanks to Anne-Kathleen Junger for her political analysis. Our panellists today were Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and James Savage. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again with a new episode of Sweden in Focus next Saturday. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.